Well, first, I just want to say welcome. If you are a first-time guest or first time in some time, we're thankful that you guys are here. And I know firsthand that it's difficult at times, especially when the NFC and AFC Championship games are going on, for you to get up off your couch and come into this space. I know for some of you, it's not just that you have other things to do or you have a busy work schedule tomorrow. I know for some of you, it's the weight of church, that place that maybe has hurt you in the past or that place that doesn't necessarily make sense to you in your thinking and in your logic, but we're thankful uh, that you guys are here with us. And while we're on the note of gratitude, I would also like to say something that doesn't necessarily get said, uh, especially from me, as often as it should. There's a lot of people behind the scenes that work very hard for TRP to be what it is, whether that's people showing up at two o'clock to help us set up, whether it's people sticking around to tear down, whether it's people that are volunteering in the back with the kids or any number of things, musicians, um, people that read stuff or participate in our liturgy, the people that lead small groups, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your investment. We are thankful for your participation. We're thankful for your willingness to be open to God's call in your life and being open to partnering with a local church. So if this is something that needs to be said much more, I apologize, but hear it loudly and clearly this evening. Thank you. I do also have to be honest a bit that I've had a hard time concentrating this week. This week has been um, obviously one that is notable in our nation uh, with the inauguration of our president on Friday, um, but there has been stuff all over social media, on the left, on the right, and some of it has just been hate-filled, vitriolic in nature and not necessarily edifying. And as I'm sitting down trying to deal with the book of Exodus, and it feels so distinct from the things that are going on in our world, sometimes I had trouble bringing those two things together. But may I just at least offer this for the community that's gathered here uh, this evening and take it for whatever it is worth, and people hold me accountable to this as well. Your voice online matters. The way that we communicate to others matters. The passions that we have are great, but the way that we communicate that at times doesn't necessarily reflect the love of Jesus. And over the past few days, I've certainly had to check myself as I'd seen things come across my timeline, things that have caused me to have the righteous rage of the Lord most high, I believe. <laughs> Whatever side of the aisle you stand on, I think you could gather with me in that. Um, but just allowing yourself to to pause and to reflect, and again, not to use Jesus as that scapegoat, but we do serve a king that transcends our nation's politics. May that be something that we are remembering, especially as we engage with a world that already has an image of the church and already has an image of Jesus and already has an image built up, and when we play into that, it does nothing to further the kingdom. So may we be led by the Spirit in all of our interactions, and may we utilize the great tool that is social media to have a cup of coffee with someone and be able to sit across uh, the table to affirm one another as human beings and to hopefully provide a different, more loving, more accepting image of Christ. Okay, so we are in a series on Exodus. I feel like this computer is wanting to harm me. Okay, um, so we are studying the book of Exodus. A few months ago, I was wrestling through some ideas about where we were going after 
centering ourselves, thinking positive thoughts. Exodus. Okay. Um, in addition to all of the technical things, which Rachel is going to hopefully help us to avoid uh, from here on out, um, this is nerdy stuff. What I'm about to to do for you this evening, and what we're about to to learn. I know that. Uh, whatever it is tonight when you leave here, you will have learned at least a few key new terms and you'll know some things that you didn't know before. Um, and I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that we are able to at least set the table for what it is that we're gonna be looking at over the next few weeks. I do wanna say this because if you're a Bible-minded folk, when you look at the book of Exodus, you know that it's long and you know that it took us 55 weeks to finish the book of Mark, which was only 16 chapters. This is like three times the size of that. So do not lose heart, people. We will not go verse by verse as we study the book of Exodus, okay? We will go thematically, although tonight we're gonna be looking at the first seven verses verses of, of the book, okay? Here we go. This is uh, the book of Exodus, chapter one, beginning in verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The word of God for the people of God. You've never been excited about a genealogy before, have you, or a list of names, okay? Now, in order to understand this, I think it's important for us to view Exodus in its larger context. If you've known me for any amount of time, you've heard me say historical and literary, perhaps even if we're getting a little bit risque, canonical context of the Bible, okay? Exodus is a book that is the second book in both the Hebrew Bible and in our Christian Old Testaments. They're different orders, okay? We're gonna talk about that this evening. But Exodus is the second book of a larger collection of five books known as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they are all linked together. They are also known as the Torah, okay? Now, in order for us to understand Exodus, we have to see it as part of this five-book collection. Now, I'm not gonna get going on this too far, um, but most people would say that Moses had something to do with the authorship of Genesis through Deuteronomy, although scholars like to point out that if that's the case, then Moses would have penned some kind of interesting and strange text about himself. One would be the, the passage in, I believe, Numbers, where he says that, I am the most humble man that has ever walked the face of the earth. That's kind of funny if he did write that. Um, but also at the end of Deuteronomy, it, it talks about Moses' own death, which I think is kind of macabre, depending on your view of how God communicates his word to people. Imagine the, the scene. Okay, Moses, I'm gonna want you to write something down here. And it says, and then Moses died. Uh, that sort of a... Thing. So at least some people would say that Moses probably wasn't, even if he was involved in the storytelling of these particular passages, um, these books did not end with Moses. And this is what I love about the Bible. God has chosen to give us something that, for lack of a better word, is messy. 
It's got people's fingerprints and handprints all over it. And most scholars would say that this collection of books, the Torah, was finally um, collected and codified around the 6th century B.C., This was 800 or so years after Moses, okay? So there's been people that have been gathering this story together. And now just for the sake of um, exhaustiveness, I want you to see something here. We have the Torah with Genesis through Deuteronomy. There's uh, another section of text within the Hebrew Bible. There's three sections of text in the Hebrew Bible. We have the Torah, we have the Nevi'im. Everybody say the Nevi'im. It means the prophets. When you think prophets, you might think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those sorts of figures. But we also need to include Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings, the historical books. They're known as the former prophets in contrast to the latter prophets, which are Isaiah and Jeremiah and those people that were doing really weird things like running around town for three years naked or laying on their one side to demonstrate the siege against Israel or the other side. These are real things happening here. Bacon bread over poop. Prophetic stuff, you know? Um, You can also see here we have the book of the 12, which is all of those little prophetic books that most of you probably don't look at. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I know that because I was in a Christmas play in the second grade, and I was Joel. And I had a little sash, and we had a song, and we sang it, and we popped up. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Okay, so... (laughs) Little, uh, little known fact there. So we have the Torah, and we have the Nevi'im, and we also have a group of texts called the Ketuvim, which is basically just the writings. It's a catch-all term for anything that's poetic or anything that's um, later in the game than these other texts. We have Psalms and Job and Proverbs. And then also note we have Ruth. I find this fascinating because in the English Bible, Kate's looking at me like, oh my gosh, I've married such the dweebus. Okay, so in the English Bible or in the Christian Old Testament, Ruth is placed after Judges. Joshua judges Ruth. Why? Because the first line of Ruth is, in the times when Judges judged. So they're putting this all together almost chronologically, although if that's your method to reading, you're going to be sorely mistaken. If you go from Genesis to Malachi, not in chronological order, okay? note. However, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed after Proverbs. And all my ladies in the room, how does Proverbs end? I will help you. (laughs) Proverbs 31 talks about the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, Um, this woman of, of valor and Ruth is the embodiment of that. And for the, 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 the collectors of the Hebrew Bible, they wanted to give an, a demonstration of who this Proverbs 31 woman was. It was Ruth. Totally different way to, to read the text as more of something that uh, is, is giving a theological message or a literary type message as opposed to a historical message. Okay, but here we have uh, Ruth and Song Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. This is a collection called the Five Scrolls. And then we also have Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah is actually one sort of thing. And then Chronicles. Again, one more note about this because it's awesome. I will try to convince you of that. In our English Bibles, the order is Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. If you're trying to read through in a year's time, you do Samuel, you do Kings, and you do Chronicles, and you say, what the heck, I just read all this stuff. You skip it, and then you go, you go on your merry way. But in the Hebrew Bible, people, Chronicles is the very last book, 
And it begins in this beautiful way that I know everyone in the room skips over. Nine chapters, nine beautiful chapters of genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And Marnie's shaking her head because that has absolutely nothing to do with my life or her life or any of our lives. But for the ancient Hebrew community who were wrestling with identity and calling in the midst of exile. Israel had been granted a land and promised a land and promised a ruler and God said, I will be with you in this land and it will be a land that's flowing with milk and honey and will be there and I will be with you until they break the covenant, they sin and they get booted out of the land. Israel in the north gets booted out by Assyria and Judah in the south gets booted out by Babylon. And we have all these people not in Israel, not in the land of promise. And they say, where are you, God? Do you even care about us? And the author of Chronicles slaps on nine chapters of name after name after name all the way down to Adam as if to say, you are still God's people, regardless of where you are. That's a cool reading of the book, isn't it? And it's a reading that is kind of brought to us because it's the last book in the Hebrew Bible order. And for most of us, we just cram it on to Samuel Kings and, and Chronicles and read them all together, but we miss the important theological point of Chronicles in so doing. So here we have the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim. This is why the Hebrew Bible altogether is called the Tanakh. Check out my color coding here. The T is for Torah, the N is for Nevi'im, and the K is for Ketuvim. The Tanakh is all of those books of the Bible. I told you we would learn something tonight, Okay. All right, so we have this order and we have to then set the context for Exodus. I promise this is going somewhere here. And back to our chart, Exodus as the second book of this five book collection uh, as the Pentateuch. Now, imagine you're on your couch and imagine you're with a friend who does not know anything about Harry Potter. And imagine that you are just minding your business and you're watching TV and all of a sudden the goblet of fire pops up and you say, oh, this is cool. I'm going to, you know, I've seen this. I've read this. I'm going to go ahead and watch this. And your friend says, you know, I've never seen any Harry Potter before and I've never read any book. What is your correct move to do? You stop and you say, well, we have to go and get the rest of the films. And you begin with the first video and then you go on your way. Actually, we're being a little bit sacrilege here because you don't just start with the videos. You say, well, we need to go get the books. I'll read out loud to you. Just sit on the couch. We can role play. I've got some costumes in the back. I'm Dumbledore always. Okay, that, that sort of thing. So you would not, though, start in the middle of this series. You would go back to the beginning so that you understand all of the complexities about Harry and Ron and Hermione and other characters. <laughs> I do know some other characters. All right, I'm going to put my cards on the table because I know some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Same thing, if you just are on the couch and something pops on, you've got a friend with you and they're just going to watch the last few episodes of Breaking Bad and they haven't seen any of the other episodes prior to, no, you do not do that. Because you would be ruining the entire story. You must go back to the beginning and, and follow this beautiful character transformation of Walter White from the unassuming chemistry teacher to this crazy character. Kate's looking at me like, stop talking about this. This is not safe territory. Get out of here. Okay. So 
There are stories that you do not just jump in and read or jump in and start watching. You have to understand the entire context, and Exodus is that. It is completely and utterly dependent upon the book of Genesis. How do we know this? One scholar named Carol Meyer, she teaches at Duke, she says, one of the most gripping narratives in the Hebrew Bible, the account of the escape from an oppressed people from bondage to freedom, begins with a rather mundane listing of the Israelite tribes. That's why when we're reading those seven verses, you're like, okay, either what's going to come out of this or I don't even know. Maybe there'll be a Harry Potter reference just to keep me interested. That was the hope, and I succeeded in that. Okay. Um, But what's interesting about this is the book even begins, and this is kind of buried in your English Bibles. You don't see this because it hasn't been translated as such. But in the very beginning, it's Va'ela Shemot B'nai Yisrael in the Hebrew. Remember, Hebrew is read from right to left. So the thing that's circled there is called a Vav, and that means and. It's a conjunction, a normal conjunction that's slapped onto this other word, Ela, which means these. I color-coded this for us so that we could see what's going on. Okay? I'm impressed by that because I'm colorblind. And I think I matched up the colors right. Right? But the way that this book begins is, and these are the names of the sons of Israel or the Israelites. It's assuming that we know something about what comes before because you don't just start a book and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's connected to what goes before it. The book assumes some knowledge. And in order to understand this book, it actually requires some knowledge. So for us just to jump in and begin looking at Exodus, we would not be prepared if we just jumped into this narrative that begins, and here are the names of some random people that you may or may not even know. So we look back to Genesis. I'm just walking through some of these first verses. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. I'll continue on here. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. So we meet these two key characters that dominate, in a sense, most of Genesis. Genesis, if you just have kind of a layman's understanding of the book, you might begin with Genesis 1-1, and there's this creation story that seems to be kind of weird, especially compared to the things that you may have heard in your AP bio class or in your university-level biology class. You have these weird things happening. You might know about Noah and the ark and that kind of stuff, but for the most part, from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, it's a story about a family, a family that God selects to say, you are my people, And from you, great things will happen. I will give you a land. I will make your name great. Those sorts of things. And we have Jacob as the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And Jacob's family story is very jacked up, for lack of a better terms. He thinks that he's going to marry Rachel, which he would say is the hot one, but ends up in the marriage tent with Leah, who is the... um, Oh, it says something in the Hebrew like the weak-eyed one. Nobody really knows what that means, but we know that she's not the hot one. (laughs) According to the Bible, it's biblical, okay? And how he ends up in the marriage tent with the weak-eyed one and doesn't quite know, I feel like my legs are doing too much movement here. Uh, I don't know how that happens, except to say... The Israelites knew how to throw a party. I do know that. Um, Because whenever marriages happen, or whenever they're shearing sheep for that matter, bring out the vats of wine. 
No? Okay. But we have Rachel who uh, <laughs> marries Leah, and then we have him marrying Rachel, and Rachel's not having kids, and then there's this whole like uh, fight between Rachel and Leah, and Leah's like, look at me, I'm popping out kids like it's my job, and Rachel's like, I can't do that, I'm so sad, and Rachel gives like the, uh, her handmaiden, and then Jacob starts having kids with the handmaiden, and then Leah's like, well, I got a handmaiden too, and by the end of it, Garrett, I mean, he's having kids with all kinds of people. And one of those kids is Joseph. And Joseph's narrative is the last, I don't know, 12 or so chapters of, of the book of Genesis. And it's fascinating, but Joseph's story begins with him being the favored son. Remember all this weird stuff with Leah and Rachel and all this stuff happening. So we have um, Joseph as the favored son. He's got this coat of many colors and his brothers hate him. And he keeps having these weird dreams where he says, um, man, a crazy thing happened. I had this dream that, you know, you guys were all bowing down to me or something. It was crazy. <laughs> so they're like, we need to kill this guy. So they throw him into a pit. Uh, the text is kind of weird on how this happens, but they, they throw him into a pit and then they decide, well, we shouldn't kill him. We should sell him. And then they sell him and then they take his coat of many colors and they dip it in blood because they found an animal and they killed it. And I, if anybody says the Bible is boring... I submit to you, you're not reading it because it's kind of crazy. Anyway, so this is a story about Joseph going to Egypt. And once he gets to Egypt, he goes through the ranks and he becomes super successful uh, until he's accused of rape and then he goes to prison. He did not, the story is crazy. He ends up in jail. And again, he's interpreting these dreams for people and trying to come to a place where he's able to get out of prison, which he finally does. The Pharaoh starts having dreams and somebody who remembers Joseph, he's actually uh, the cup bearer or the vineyard attendant, uh, which is some kind of a job, says, I know a guy back in prison who he understood my dream. Maybe he can understand your dream. And he retells the the dream and Joseph interprets it. And then Pharaoh is so enamored with Joseph that he places him in a high position, number two in all of the land. And then finally, there's this moment where there's a famine in all of the land and Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt where he already is. And he puts them through the ringer. I mean, he makes them do all kinds of crazy stuff. And he puts, um, they tried to pay for this food with silver and he puts it back in their bags. And so when they leave, they find the silver and they think that they're going to die. And he just, he puts them through the ringer. But finally, there's this moment where he reveals himself to his, his family and his whole entire family comes down to Egypt to try to escape famine because Joseph had found favor with all of the people in the land. That's a really rough uh, retelling of the last few chapters of Genesis, but we see here as Exodus begins, it's re retelling this narrative or at least wanting us to understand that Israel, all of Israel is down in Egypt because of Joseph and because of the faithfulness that he had exhibited and because God had blessed him and because he was trying to save his, his people. There's also a note in, I believe it's uh, verse seven, where it says, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And any ancient reader, and perhaps just for us as we sit here, this has imagery that is evoking Genesis. 
In chapter one of the book, God says, be fruitful and multiply. And here we see Israel in the land of Egypt being exceedingly fruitful and multiplying greatly and becoming the people that God is calling them to become. So we have Israel in Egypt, but we also have this idea or this theme that God is keeping and will keep his promises throughout the book. Now, Exodus at 30,000 feet, um, I want us to, to note a few things just about this book, and then we'll wrap it up and see what this has to do with us today. This story is about liberation. Remember, we have all of Israel in Egypt, and after, we'll see in the next few verses, after the Pharaoh that knew Joseph is dead and all of Joseph's family and brothers, after they are dead, they begin to be forced into slavery. And this narrative focuses on God's people in a foreign land trying to build things or make bricks. And it's just difficult and hard. And the story in the first 15 chapters of Exodus is about liberating God's people from submission and servitude into freedom, into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, into this place where God would dwell with them and they would be in constant communion with him. It's a story also about law because as Israel, spoiler alert, they do leave Egypt. Okay, I hope I didn't ruin that for everybody. But once they get out, they have this law that's given to them on Sinai. This is God's law so that they can do what it is that God wants them to do and to live within the covenant where God is giving himself to his people, saying these are the rules by which I want you to abide, but understand that I am with you. I am your God and you will be my people. And the last few chapters in Exodus is about presence because it's all about these um, rules about the tabernacle, how to construct it, how to put it up, how to take it down, because in the Israelites' mind, God would live there in the tabernacle. We have in Exodus this story of um, liberation and law-giving and ultimately God's presence with his people. Now understand, too, that Exodus, this story, every other book, more or less, looks back to Exodus, this moment where people are taken from slavery and bondage into freedom. This becomes the paradigmatic story of how good God is and how good God can be. Whenever things are going poorly, you can trust that the God of the Exodus will become the God of your Exodus. And this is how people in the Old Testament be began to reuse scripture to tell these stories over and over again so that they would understand that God is still with his people. There's a new emerging scholar um, who's written a, written a, a monograph, um, good looking guy. This is like my dissertation, it's, it's published, and I'm pretty excited about that. No, you won't see this anymore, unless I think that I'm a quotable person, um, <laughs> which I don't. Uh, okay, but in, in this dissertation, I do this uh, study of the Thanksgiving Psalms, which is basically people going to the temple to give thanks for what God has delivered them from, and they tell the story of how they were once in the pit, and God delivered them, and therefore we should do this, that, and the other thing. They have these moments where they're saying, this was my story, but God delivered me. I prayed, and God set my feet onto a new place. 
And what happens a lot of times in these stories is they look back or they evoke language of the Exodus as if to say, I was in the pit, I was in my moment, my Exodus, and God brought me from submission and oppression into freedom and life. This is actually a quote from N.T. Wright, so don't get your hopes up. My, I, I start, when it seems as though Yahweh had abandoned Israel or that Yahweh's purpose for this people had come to an end, N.T. Wright says this, and he's not even an Old Testament scholar, guys. I don't, anyway, he says, the psalmist looked back to God's mighty deeds of old and claimed them as the pattern of what will happen in the future as well. This is all I really want you to see is the exodus becomes a moment and an event for people that they can look back to whenever their life is hitting the fan, whenever their moment needs God to be present and to be active and to be one who fights for their release from captivity into freedom and life. They can look back and say, well, he did it once back then. Maybe he can do it here and now. And this is how the Old Testament looks back to the story over and over and over. They see God as one who will be the God of the exodus Again, this is really wordy and heady, but I, I want to try to break it down for you. The exilic or post-exilic community. Now, and the reason why I'm talking about this is because, remember I said that Exodus was probably completed in the 6th century, well after Moses. The people that have had their hands all over it were in this period of being removed from the land and and kicked out almost, and we're asking these big questions about who God was and what God would do for them. This is, this is what they're getting here in their moment. The exilic or post-exilic community had to practice its faith in a context where the primary guarantees of the Jerusalem establishment had been terminated and where foreign powers governed. These people were in a context where they were under the oppression of a pharaoh again. This story was not just history way back then. This was their life here and now. And the book of Exodus is to be understood as a literary, pastoral, liturgical, and theological response to an acute crisis. Texts that ostensibly concern 13th century matters, in fact, are heard in a 6th to 4th century crisis. And what I mean is this, the past was not just the past. This story was not written for history's sake. This story was written for our sake. And it has been written for the sake of God's people ever since it was first penned and ever since those people made their way through the waters of the Red Sea, whatever that looked like. This is a story about divine protection and divine investment in his people and a divine release from oppression and servitude and slavery. For the New Testament authors, I've got two, two more slides, so stick with me. For the New Testament authors, this is what becomes paradigmatic for Jesus' ministry. When he goes out in the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan, in this, this water scene, they saw that as a crossing of the sea, moving from slavery and servitude into the promised land. When Jesus ascends the mountain to give his Sermon on the Mount, they see him as a new Moses figure. Jesus becomes, in a sense, the leader of the better exodus, where it's not just a release from physical oppression, but it's also a release from spiritual oppression. And we see these New Testament authors, they are so enamored by this, this theme of exodus and 
the powers being subverted to God's purposes, Jesus becomes the one who leads us through the waters to the promised land, to life and to hope. So what does this mean for us? All the stuff about Exodus and its place in the Bible and the story that it's trying to tell, the story about liberation and law-giving and covenant and presence, and we see this wrapped up in Jesus as the one who initiates the better Exodus that allows us to go into the promised land to receive life and to receive the goodness that God has to offer, to receive a removal from oppression and slavery and, and servitude, whatever that means. What does it mean for us now as we read this? Exodus offers us a powerful counter-testimony to what's happening in the world all around us, where we see people who are not just in spiritual oppression, spiritual bondage, but we see people who are actually in real oppression, real bondage. On a very small level, that could be the bondage that we feel due to our sin or due to the thoughts that we have in our minds, the, the fears and the depression and the anxiety that is kind of like, keeping us down. We have these things in our life where we feel the weight of our own suppression to these powerful forces. And Jesus, as the leader of the better exodus, says, follow me, and I will bring you into life and into freedom. On a larger scale, it could, though, be that within our world, we see people who are in slavery and servitude to perhaps the oppression of poverty, the oppression of uh, dictators in their countries. We see people that are enslaved because they are alone and orphaned and abandoned. What I want us to see is that Exodus is not just a story about old stuff way back when. Exodus is a story that has so much power for us today because it is the paradigm by which God works. In chapter 2, Israel has been crying out to God, wanting God to answer. And there's a text that says, God heard the prayers of his people and God knew. When we pray, when we go through these moments where we feel oppression, where we feel as though we are in bondage, where we feel we are enslaved, when we lift our voices and we pray, I want to submit to us this evening that God hears our prayers and God knows. He knows how we feel. He knows where we have been. He knows that he can lead us into freedom and life, into that promised land that is good, flowing with milk and honey. So we're going to get nerdy a bit as we look through Exodus, and I'm going to talk a lot about some things, and we might even throw some Hebrew up on the screen because I enjoy that from time to time. However, this story that has culminated in Jesus in his life, death, and his resurrection still has importance for us today because we see the power of God who wants us to experience life and life to the full now through his son, Jesus, which is available to us each and every day.